0: Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. On the program, Dr. Neufeld continues his series, Journey to the Cross, with a closer look at what happened immediately after Jesus was arrested in the garden. So let's go back to the Bible. As we examine today's message, Friday, the journey goes on
1: trial. There are great moments in history where a bit of ground, a tiny piece of geography, represents the turning point in history. When Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon in 49 BC, that was such a time. Roman law forbade any general from crossing the Rubicon with a standing army, for to do so would threaten the government of Rome. A Roman general crossing the Rubicon with a Roman army was considered an act of treason. The minute Caesar crossed, the die was cast. He would either be executed for his act or triumph over the Roman Senate and change history. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was just such a moment. The moment he entered on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9-9, the die was cast. And then when he crosses the Kidron Valley and goes to a place where Judas was sure to find him on Thursday night, a place where no one was likely to raise a disturbance, the chain of events were inevitable. But we've been saying from the outset that Jesus orchestrated, directed, and controlled the events he was living out. He had already told his disciples this not long before. Matthew 20:18 records him saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is his statement that he had deliberately chosen the events that were now unfolding. In that evening, they had celebrated Passover in the upper room, sung a hymn, and gone out into the night. They walked out of the city down the steep embankment into the Kidron Valley and would have stained the bottom of their robes with the flow of blood of the countless sacrificed lambs. They mounted the other side where Jesus prayed in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. By the time Judas arrives, there's blood on the bottom of Jesus' robe and blood on his forehead from the intensity of his prayer. How deeply foreboding of the events that lay ahead. What follows deep into the night is the trial of Jesus that lasted until the break of day. Most of us think that what happened that night was the illegal trial of Jesus held secretly well into the night, and and that's true, but it's not the whole truth. Jesus didn't have one trial. Instead, he went through six trials before he was crucified, and so on this day, as we are now so very close to Good Friday, I want to take us into a journey into the six trials of Jesus. We will discover what was done, of what he was found guilty, and the reasons that were given for them to put him to death. When Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, he was led to the house of a man named Annas. He was the father-in-law of the high priest, who was Caiaphas. Annas had been the high priest, and he clearly was respected and had a great deal of power, probably more power than his son-in-law. Here, Annas could make sure that Caiaphas was handling the matter properly, but if anything went wrong, like a real man of power, he would make sure that the blame fell on Caiaphas. Here at his house, we encounter the first trial of Jesus. But this is no official trial. This was an attempt to cook the outcome of the later trial. When men decide to do evil things, they always hold secret meetings to set their strategy. They needed to find a way to so bring charges together so that they could get this by the people. They agreed that the faster they could put Jesus to death now, the better. Caiaphas was given the responsibility to question Jesus there. Perhaps they could get him to say something they could hang him on. And so he questioned Jesus on his teaching. Jesus responded by saying that nothing he had taught was done in secret but in public. It was a matter of public record. Why doesn't he ask the people who heard him? Immediately, an officer standing beside Jesus hit him in the mouth. Peter was standing outside in the courtyard of Anna's house. He had promised Jesus he would not abandon him, but nothing was normal about this, and the intensity was rising. A slave girl approached him and asked if he was a follower of Jesus, and did she matter? And should her intrusiveness into something that was none of her business give him away right now? He simply denied that he had anything to do with Jesus. Having failed to gain anything of value in Anna's house, they decide to move Jesus to the more official courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. Here will be the second trial of Jesus, the first one having produced nothing and having failed miserably. Peter is falling outside at a distance, feeling ever more insecure about his role. Here the elders and the scribes were gathered in a more official manner, a new plan is hastily put together. Here they call false witnesses. The name devil, or the Greek word diabolos, is the one who slanders. Slander is very effective. Simply have enough charges, and in the back of everyone's mind is the idea that this man must have done something wrong. So the first man quotes an incident from Jesus' first year of ministry, where he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. Of course, he was speaking of his own body, but at this moment, twisting and distorting are the order of the day. This witness said, I heard him say that he's going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. More witnesses, more twisting of facts, more charges. At this point, Jesus makes no answer to anything that is said against him. Indeed, many of the false witnesses are contradicting each other. There is chaos. Finally, in desperation, for everything is going badly, Caiaphas, the high priest, demands he answer the question, are you the Christ? And then, are you the son of the blessed one? And now having been quiet, Jesus speaks because on this one, he will give his reply. He says, you yourself have said it, and you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. He's quoting Psalm 110 verse 1 and Daniel 7 verse 13. Well, the high priest tears his robe and screams blasphemy. We have no need for witnesses. There, right there is the evidence I was looking for what do you think? He asks the elders. And they all say he's deserving of death. And then it is as if Satan himself enters the room and they lose all sense of dignity. Suddenly they're upon Jesus. They're now slapping his face, punching him with fists. Others simply slapping him and shouting like madmen, prophesy to us, you Messiah, which one of us hit you? And that's how the second trial ends. And it's now time for the third trial. But before we move to the third trial, we must update the matter of Peter standing on the outside. Most of us know this story. By now, Peter has denied he knows Christ three times, and as he denies him the third time, as morning is breaking, a rooster crows. Luke tells us that at that moment, the Lord looked at Peter. I'm assuming that after having been beaten and spit upon, they're moving Jesus out of the house of Caiaphas. And as he has just denied Jesus, and as the rooster crows, Jesus is being led out. And the eyes of the two men meet each other. It's more than Peter can bear. He runs out. And as he runs, he begins to weep, not softly, but bitterly. His wails of sorrows must have been heard. He has denied his Lord. Jesus is moved again. He started at the house of Annas and then the official residence of the high priest. Now he's moved to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. It's very, very early Friday morning, and they're in a hurry. The entire council is called to an emergency assembly. Here they do not bring the sordid group of liars who testified before. Here they want him only to repeat what he has said in the house of Caiaphas. But they decide they have to be a bit careful in how they ask the question. They have got to get him to repeat the stuff about coming in the clouds of heaven and claiming equality with God. But he might not do it in front of the official Supreme Court. So they start questioning him a bit more slowly. The first question is a little more benign. If you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus is coy. If I tell you, you won't believe me. Ah, this is not going to be easy. But then, surprise of surprise, Jesus is not done. He gives them everything they're asking for without them even asking. But from now on, he says, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Wow. But there might be a problem. He has only said the Son of Man, not I will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He might yet have an out. And now came a question, and when it was asked, they held their collective breath. Are you the Son of God? And without even a hesitation, he says, either, he says, you say that I am, or yes, I am. And with that, a roar went out. We have him. This is the blasphemy deserving death. Please, please, my dear hearer, do not miss this point. The reason why Christ was crucified is because he claimed to be the Son of God. In this day, when people say, I'm willing to accept Jesus as a prophet or a a great teacher and even a great example, you should know why it is that Jesus was condemned to die. He was condemned because he claimed to be the Son of God. I don't know if Judas had been given a ringside seat to that, but we do know that the minute Jesus made his claim, he tried to give the money back that he had gotten, but they refused. They wanted nothing to do with that. Whatever Judas did with the money, that was his business. Judas recognizing in that moment what all of this entailed went out and hanged himself. And when we come back, we're gonna look at the remaining three trials of Jesus and why it led to his crucifixion. I think what this introduction
0: has shown us is a sobering picture of the first three trials that Jesus went through. We also see a growing intensity and progression of each trial as the chief priest's hatred and determination to kill Jesus becomes increasingly real. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will take us through the final trials that took place in front of the Gentiles and to the conclusion of the crowds that sealed Jesus' fate once and for all. By now you've probably heard of our latest resource, Truth and Life magazine. The magazine's first issue has been so well received that hundreds of new people subscribed in only the last few weeks. Truth and Life magazine is a combination of Bible matters and life matters, but features more Bible teaching content, more resources, and more inside ministry information than ever before. Articles range from the theological to life application, words of encouragement, news, and updates. Published six times a year, you'll continue to receive the biblical insights of Dr. John Newfeld, the unique writings of Phil Calloway directing us to a God of hope and joy, and guest authors writing on a variety of relevant issues all with the purpose of leading us closer in our walk with Jesus. Truth and Life magazine will speak to you. So if you haven't signed up for your free subscription, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: The first three trials of Jesus were held before the Jews and the last three are held before the Gentiles. Jesus is brought before Pilate, and Pilate was the Roman governor, who normally had his residence in Caesarea, but during the Passover, moved along with a garrison of troops into a place in Jerusalem called the Antonio Fortress. This was a large fortified building, and on the inside, it housed a grand open courtyard called the Praetorium. The Jewish leaders lead Jesus to the residence of Pilate, but they will not enter themselves. According to Jewish tradition, observant Jews were not to enter the residence of a Gentile, otherwise they would become ceremonially defiled. I hope you see the irony. They have held an illegal trial in the middle of the night, they have abused their prisoner, have called false witnesses, and were determined to kill the rightful heir of the throne of Israel. But it hasn't occurred to these men how defiled they already are. The Sixth Commandment says you shall not murder. The Ninth Commandment says you shall not bear false witness. And all these men care about is how ritually clean they are so that they will not be defiled for the Passover and the upcoming Sabbath. And so Pilate is forced to go outside and meet with them. He wants to know what charge they have, and they don't say. What he claims to be the Son of God will not even register with Pilate. The Romans were tolerant of many religious claims and many gods and goddesses. If another crazy man runs around Israel claiming to be a god, what's that to do with him? They decide to sidestep the issue. They say they would not bring anyone to him unless the matter were really quite serious. Finally, they say he forbids paying taxes to Caesar and claims to be a king. Pilate takes Jesus into the praetorium and asks him, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' And after a lengthy conversation, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world, and I am sending no one to fight for an earthly kingdom. Well, Pilate has heard enough. He goes out with Jesus and tells the Jews, I find no fault in him. Now, there's a great commotion. All manner of charges are brought against him, but not that he claimed to be the Son of God. Pilate is amazed Jesus gives no answer at all. But what can you do with a group of zealous religious leaders ready to whip themselves into a lather? And the man who is at the center remains calm. The last thing he needs now is some kind of a riot. What to do? And this now leads to Jesus' fifth trial. Pilate finds out Jesus is from Galilee. (laughs) Ah, just the ticket. He sends him off to the residence of King Herod, for Galilee is his jurisdiction. Herod is right then in Jerusalem. This is the same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. Pilate despises this man, but let Herod sort the matter out. He understands Jewish religion after all, and Herod is delighted. Perhaps Jesus will do a miracle at his presence, but Jesus just stands there and refuses to speak to Herod. So Herod mocks him and treats him with contempt and dresses him in a kingly royal robe as a joke and sends him back to Pilate. Somehow, and we don't know how, this act between the two men forged a friendship between them. And so we come to the final trial of Jesus, his second appearance before Pilate, and this is brutal. At first, Pilate is determined to release Jesus. His wife has had a very disturbing dream, and because of the dream, she tells him, don't have a part in this man's death. Pilate takes note, but by then the religious leaders have stirred up the crowd into a frenzy, and they scream out in front of the praetorium, they want Jesus crucified. It will be mob justice. And so Pilate takes Jesus and has him beaten, scourged with whips that contain bits of lead and bone meant to rip out flesh and expose sinew and literally make his back look like ground beef. They take a crown of thorns with long, an inch and a half sharp nail-like thorns and ram it into the top of his head, and they beat his face, probably breaking his nose and making a bloody mess of his appearance. In this utterly dehumanizing treatment, Pilate wishes to engender some form of pity in the crowd. At the very least, Jesus will look like he is not a threat to anyone. If he is a king, don't worry about it. I can have my way with him anytime. And so he trots out the disfigured Jesus. He announces, I have found no guilt in him. But the sight of the bloodied and beaten and mutilated Jesus engenders no pity. It's like the smell of blood before sharks. It sends the crowd into a frenzy. Finish him off. Crucify him. It's right here in the midst of this that Pilate hears something that makes his blood run cold. No savaging Jesus did not bother him. He was a battle-hardened soldier who had tortured more than one victim. But it was this strange thing. Why did they want him dead so bad? And then, in an unguarded moment, the awful truth comes out. He made himself out to be the Son of God. Suddenly, a different reaction than anyone had expected. Suddenly, fear shoots through Pilate. What is this? He drags Jesus back into the praetorium. Where do you come from? No answer. Pilate says, listen to me, you won't talk. He's now panicked, hoping he's going to intimidate Jesus. I have the power to put you to death. And now for the first time, Jesus speaks. You would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. And Pilate knows instinctively what that means. His soul is right now being weighed in the balance. So Pilate is done with the games. He comes back to the crowd. No, absolutely not. I release this man. But the frenzy of the priests is now evident. If you release him, they scream back. We will report to Rome that you released a man who made himself a rival king to Caesar. And The problem was that at that moment in history, Pilate was having his own problems with Rome. He was himself walking through a political quagmire with Rome where his own loyalties were being questioned. The chief priest knows this and will play it for all it's worth. And Pilate is now desperate. Will you crucify your king? And then comes the second awful truth. They shout back, we have no king but Caesar. I wanna stop here for a moment because as many of you know, there's a a terrible history that has developed over this series of events. During the middle ages, it had become common to accuse the Jewish people of being Christ killers. They forced Pilate's hand. Slanderous statements were made for during this time of trial when Pilate wanted Jesus released. He then washed his hands and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood, and the crowd screamed back, His blood be upon us and on our children. But the Bible has no part of this kind of thinking for several reasons. The first is simple. Had Jesus not died, there would be no atonement for our sins. Secondly, the Jewish people are as Paul says in Romans 3:19, God's lesson book to the nations. They show us what we would all do if we were in their place. And finally, the Bible calls us to honor the natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that we in Christ are grafted into the vine of Israel. So the Bible will not allow anti-Semitism as a result of this trial. What the trial of Jesus really teaches us is that all of humanity had no place for God's king. We would all rather have had Barabbas rather than Christ. The trial of Jesus, therefore, ends up not being his trial, but really, when you think about it, it's ours. What will we do with Jesus, since he will not allow any other option but the one he's given us? Since he insists that he is the Son of God and the rightful Messiah in this world, what will we do with Jesus? He demands all of us answer the question. I know, I know. Pilate would wash his hands and say, I am innocent, but he was not. We want to do the same. We too want to wash our hands and say, if I'd been there, I'd never have done what they did. But the story of the trial of Jesus makes men into monsters and disciples into cowards. And the only innocent man who attended that trial was the one who stood condemned. All humanity stands guilty at the trial of Jesus. And therefore, when we rightly understand what was done at that moment, we must all bow our heads and say, Oh Lord, I see myself. Some of you know the painting by Rembrandt, his self-portrait. In it he is wearing a painter's smock and a painter's hat and uh, his paintbrush is in his hand, but he stands at the base of Jesus' cross as he too is one who nailed him to that cross. Rembrandt had it right. We must read ourselves into that story. We must not shout out to the Jewish people, Christ killers, but we must see in their action our action as well. We must see our solidarity in putting Jesus to death. And that must lead us to a sober self-evaluation and in a willingness to repent.
0: Dr. Neufeld, you can't help but be impacted uh, by this passage and by the reflection on everything that Christ went through and what he suffered. And I guess, to be honest, you wonder why, why was it all so necessary? Uh, He was going to die. He could have just died. Why all this beating? Why all this gore?
1: Such a good question, because we should notice the gore, we should notice the beating. There is, on the one hand, that physical suffering of Christ, which is so real. But on the other hand, of course, we know that there's the the emotional trauma of being abused the way he was verbally, all of the false accusation that come against him, his unwillingness to even respond to it, because there's really nothing for him to respond to. There would just be more accusation that follows. And when I put all of that together, I've got to come to this conclusion. Maybe what God is wanting to communicate to us is the depth of our sin. Christ needed to bear this because that's what our sin actually looks like in front of God. And boy, I get this feeling that when we really grasp hold of that, we'll never think about our sin in the same way. We really should look at the death of Christ and say, I see not only horrible pathos and suffering, I see myself.
0: Thanks, John. He really gives us something to consider as we consider the sufferings of Christ and how necessary they were, perhaps, for us to understand the magnitude of what he's done. Well, we look forward to your continued messages tomorrow on Journey to the Cross as we consider more of the happenings of Good Friday and how Jesus was led to die on the cross. I hope that you've been challenged by today's teaching on what Jesus went through during those six trials leading up to his crucifixion. What a powerful and indeed sobering lesson to reflect upon as we consider how the trials remind us of this central question. What will we do with Jesus? For those of us who believe he is the Son of God, let us not forget that. Like those crowds, we too once rejected him. And by His grace, we must strive to continually follow Him and proclaim Him as Lord in our lives. Join us again tomorrow as Dr. Newfeld looks at more of Good Friday when Jesus is led to die on a bloody cross. Ever wonder what it would be like to trace the missionary footsteps of the Apostle Paul? Well, coming April 24th to May 7th, 2017, join us on our New Testament Greece by land and by sea tour. For 12 days, we'll visit ancient sites including Athens, Ephesus, Corinth, and even the island of Patmos. Of course, you'll hear the in-depth daily Bible teaching of Dr. John Neufeld. and In the evenings, enjoy the unique ministry of Phil Calloway of Laugh-Again and the inspirational music of The Weaves. This is an incredible opportunity to visit Greece both by land and by sea. We're limited to only 80 guests, so be sure to sign up soon. To register, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.